Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We are continuing our sermon series in Jonah, and as we've been reading through this, I have a working theory on Jonah, that it stands as a parable. I'm not saying this is fiction or anything else, that it didn't happen, but I'm saying that I think it stands as a parable in the middle of all these other prophetic books, where all these prophets have so many words that they say to the people of Israel and the kings of Israel. And Jonah walks in with five words in the Hebrew and into Nineveh and says, repent, and they do. In just five words, you have this, this uh, foreign uh, uh, city, non-Hebrew, non-in-relationship with God, and you have uh, this, they all repent and do exactly what Israel, uh, God would like Israel to be doing as well, from the king to the be- to the highest to the lowest. I think this is kind of a backup um, underground, like kind of the the background stories for uh, the Good Samaritan parable, as well as the parable of the prodigal son, where you see non-Israelites, non-Hebrews acting in a way that is just and merciful, that is repentant in the way that God would have them act as well. So parable, it's a theory that I have. I'm not sure. I haven't backed that up yet, but um, seems to work itself out. Here in Jonah 3, we see that a second chance is being given to Jonah and to the people of Nineveh as well. If you were given a second chance, what would you do? Would you maybe say the thing you wished you'd said, the zinger? to really get back at that person who did something mean to you? Or would you show kindness to someone who you kind of wish you had, someone that you just kind of didn't feel the full thrust of how God was moving you in that moment? Would you have kissed the boy or the girl? Would you um, have done anything different? Does anybody have second chance stories this morning?
Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it would be easy to read Jonah 3 and see it merely as a second chance story. But I think it's a whole lot more than that. I think it's about repentance. Repentance isn't as exciting as a second chance, though. Repentance is more than apology. It's more than feeling bad. It's more than just kind of chronic remorse that we go through or restitution or making amends or even penitence. These are all parts of repentance, I think, but the process of, or part of the process of repentance, but none of them capture, I believe, the full force of repentance. Repentance is change. It's a change of mind. It's a change of thinking. It's a change of behavior. It might be change of direction and even a change that changes our whole entire life. And in the Christian faith, it's often quite, it's quite associated with uh, the newness of life that God brings in and through Jesus Christ, the resurrection life that he gives to us. Repentance is at the very heart of our faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not merely just kind of a one-and-done event. It is the wholeness of the Christian faith. It is a continuous process of changing and being changed into the likeness of Christ. It's being formed, transformed, and cruciformed into his life and the life that he gives us. This story uh, had just come to mind uh, a few times lately. Uh, I had a friend in St. Louis who um, was, uh, we were close, we went to the same church, um, we were in Bible City together, but I, he would not call himself a Christian for quite a while. And one day, finally, he did. He told me that he, he prayed and accepted Christ and that um, he was excited for the new life that he was to be experiencing. And another person, I told, told uh, someone, I can't remember who I told, but somebody else asked me, well, what's your, what's your goal for this guy? What's your goal for Joe? What do you want, what do you want for him? And I really didn't have an answer. And I thought, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't have a goal for him. But I think over the last few weeks, as this story has come into my mind, that question in particular has been ringing with me. And thinking through it as a pastor, I can come up with a lot of answers. I could say I want this person to be a leader or an elder in the church. I would want them to be a missionary to go serve God somewhere else in this uh, world outside the U.S. or uh, become a pastor, enter into um, you know vocational ministry, or become a great philanthropist um, and to be generous uh, with all uh, that God has blessed him with. Uh, knowing this particular individual, um, none of those things would fit him. Um, but what came to mind recently is that he would be more and more transformed into the likeness of Christ. Not a goal that he would reach, but a process that would be continually happening in his life. Not a one-and-done kind of change that takes place, but a change that continues to take place in his life. But we don't like change. Some of us hate change. Some of us moved into a house in 92 and have not left for good reasons. Why? Well, at 41, I don't want to try new things anymore all that often. I've tried the things. I 
have found the the drinks that I like. I've found um, the um, I have the clothes that I like to wear. I am very rarely willing to take many risks on new restaurants to tr- try, even though um, I love to be able to go out to new places. I want to know it's going to be good because I don't have that many opportunities to go out. I don't want to break in another pair of boots at 41. My feet hurt enough already. I don't want to move. I don't want to change careers. I don't want to do what any other person, uh, friend, and otherwise that I know of are doing in their midlife crisis. To do something new or different is incredibly challenging and painful. But sometimes, eventually, the pain of our lives becomes so great that we have to change no matter what that challenge is set before us. Going to physical therapy, having my back worked on, doing exercises and stretching every day to get back to normal and healthy. My body is freaking out about it. There's whole days that go by that I just think like one wrong twist or move. If I take a breath wrong, if I step, I pressed on the pork that was thawing on the counter the other day and I just reached over and pressed and my back was like, yeah, don't do that. I'm like, this is a normal move. Like what's going on here? But slowly, I think it is adjusting to a healthier way of functioning. That is what repentance is. It is a learned process that we go through our whole lives. In Jonah 3, we see three different people repenting, changing their course of action, changing their lives. We have Jonah, we have the people of Nineveh, and we have God as well. And if they can do it, if they're willing to do it, I believe that we can be as well. First of all, Jonah. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3 with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. A new beginning, Jonah gets. Those words in verse three, uh, chapter three, verse one, are nearly identical to verse uh, to chapter one, verse one. God is giving Jonah a second chance. He's allowing him to repent. Arise, uh, and he arose, and he goes, and he calls out. All of these things echoing what Jonah should have been doing from chapter one. This time, instead of fleeing to Nineveh. Jonah heads towards Nineveh, that great city. A three days journey can be uh, interpreted a few different ways. Uh, it could mean that it's that big and great of a city. You know, if somebody's able to walk about three miles an hour, that would put this at about 70 miles across or 90 miles across. Some one commentator did the math. I don't do math. Um, and uh, that, that no city, uh, you know, that would be larger than, uh, than modern, like the whole metropolis of Los Angeles. More likely, it is, means that that's the amount of time that he was going to spend there to prophesy against it, similar to the amount of time that he spent in the belly of the fish. Jonah gets a second chance, and he takes it. Jonah repents by listening to and being led by the word of God. Jonah's two, his whole prayer in the belly of the, the fish is line by line comes from the Psalms. He was steeped in God's word. He was steeped in prayer before God. This is the baseline of our faith. 
believing and trusting that God and his life-giving word, and it is life-giving, that's the thing that we have to believe, that it is life-giving. It often sounds restrictive to let someone else tell us what to do in our lives. It sounds painful. It sounds like we're giving authority to someone other than me. This world trains us in our culture that we are the one who makes the decisions for our life. We are the ultimate authority in our lives. Slogans like, be true to yourself, uh, be true to you, YOLO, treat yourself, only you can prevent forest fires. Maybe that's a good one. Uh, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. I think the problem with all of these is that it keeps the focus on you and you alone. But in order for us to find meaning and purpose in our lives, we have to look outside of ourselves to give ourselves over to something greater, someone greater than ourselves. Repenting is restrictive. It is painful. It is sacrificial because it leads us out of ourselves to the one, to God, to Christ, who is so much more life-giving than the things we are turning away from. And we repent because we have to do that over and over and over and over again. When we are led by the word of God, we are giving ourselves over to the one who gave his life for us, Jesus. And when we give our lives to him, he gives his life to us. How do we do that now? We receive his life by being in his word, by opening scripture on a regular daily basis and read it. And it doesn't have to be very much. It can be quite uh, uh, one verse even to sit and dwell on it, to consume it. It's kind of cyclical logic, but it actually that doesn't negate it. The more time you are in God's word, the more you will receive God's life. It gets in us and begins to bring about a new life the one that doesn't run in the opposite direction, but runs toward whatever God is calling us to. Eugene Peterson has a book entitled Eat This Book, in which he argues to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to consume it. Practically, you can pick a book of the Bible and read a chapter a day. You can pick a verse and read it over and over and over again so that you do become, just by, by spending time with it, by meditating on it, it becomes a part of who you are. Maybe we don't know where to start. John, the book of John, is a great place to start. The book of the Psalms is a great place to start. If you want a very heavy meal, to use that analogy, go to Romans um, and, and sit and read a few verses at a time and think on it and let God's word get in you. Just as we've been going through Jonah uh, the, the last month or so, I've been reading uh, the chapter we're preaching on uh, each day. So I'm just reading the chapter of Jonah. And just by doing that, I've been given so many more insights into my life and into the life of Jonah and the, the way his story plays out in the life of Israel as well. It just brings about an awareness that God is doing something. God is present in your life. God is near you. Because listening to and being led by God's word is the first step in repentance. Jonah repents by letting God lead him through his word. Nineveh repents as well. Look at verses 5 
through 9 with me. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Nineveh, Jonah enters Nineveh and preaches. Very simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. A mere five words in Hebrews that just cuts through the city. And just after one day of his three-day journey, his preaching tour, the Ninevites repent immediately and word gets to the king as the whole city becomes uh, enters into a fast for themselves and believe God. The word gets to the king of Nineveh, and he too humbles himself. He steps off his throne. He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth, and he sits in ashes, joining the fast that the people have started. He even puts out an official decree, essentially doing Jonah's job for him. Right? He says so much more than what Jonah does. Uh, no man or woman or beast or herd or flock should eat or drink anything. This is a radical fast, one that really doesn't sustain life. You can't do that for 40 days. You have to drink. But it's the, the extreme that he's calling for, to call out to God, turn from your evil ways and the violence in your hands. I love this. Who knows? Who knows? Perhaps God may turn and relent from his fierce anger that we might not perish. I love the condition there. Nineveh was a, a polytheistic culture. They worshiped many gods, and they could very easily just bring the Yahweh God into their culture as well. They don't use the personal name of God, Yahweh, as Jonah does, but the general term El or Elohim. They adopt God, the God of Jonah, as the sailors did. but They humble themselves before him. They repented. They turned away from their evil and their violence from the top to the bottom, to the beasts, to the herds of the field. Very odd declaration, but in doing so, they fast. And the repentance comes in fasting. It's the outward sign of the inward change that has taken place. Season of Lent that we're in is often associated with fasting. In our modern day, we often give up something for Lent. It can be soda or candy or social media, chocolate, whatever it is. In the early church, those who were baptized on Easter would fast for these 40 days, uh, preparing themselves, entering into the suffering of Christ as well, repenting of their sins, and embracing the new life that God has given them. Fasting has been a historical practice for the people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New. Traditionally, it was giving up meals for a certain period of time or certain parts of the day, sunrise to sunset, doing it for different times. People often fast before they're going to make a big decision, when they are seeking guidance or wisdom from God. 
And it's not something that we have talked very much about at the table. It's not something that I practice as often as I probably should. It's hard to remember the last time I fasted. Usually I'm feasting. They're very similar to one another. We That's why we have the words on the wall. That's why it's one of our uh, values at the table because we believe in the goodness of what God has given us has given us. But sometimes there are moments when we need to fast to be able to get down to the bare essentials of what life is. It's like going camping. You leave behind all the things that you use on a regular basis. Maybe you go to a remote place where there is not uh, cell coverage. Maybe you are out of, you're just out of your house. You're out of your normal comforts. You're sleeping essentially on the floor, on the ground. Uh, you have a, a very thin piece of cloth protecting you from the elements. We went to uh, uh, Canyonlands a few years ago as a family before Joshua was born. And it just felt so freeing to have nothing with us. We woke up. What are we going to eat? Let's make a fire. Let's cook some food. Now what are we going to do? We're going to walk around. There was no distractions. There was nothing taking away from uh, our, our focus of surviving, if you will. We're able to see the beauty of God's creation around us. And it was just so... Uh, relaxing, so comforting to know that what we have here is life. That is what God has giving, given to us. Fasting is not to be kind of self-pleasing by navel-gazing at our own holiness or to show ourselves off or to earn some favor from God. We don't need to post about it on Instagram or uh, tell people about it even. In Jesus, you have God's favor already Fasting is casting off the extra that we have and being clothed with Christ. Fasting is hard. It's not comfortable. But hopefully by giving up meals, we in particular, we are able to create space for our hunger to be satisfied in God. A lot of times what people do, what I have done in the past when it comes to fasting, is that I have given up a meal or two, two or three for the day. For a few, I set a time period for that, so maybe one, two, or three days, and I just say, I'm not going to eat food during this time, and I'll drink water. I'll make sure I'm, I'm, I'm being taken care of nutrient-wise, um, but I will sit down, and I will uh, open Scripture during those meal times, and I will read um, and meditate on God's word. He, as we said, to consume that and say, "This is where I get my life." Dan Allender, who uh, is a counselor and um, a professor at a, a school out in Seattle now, says, "Fasting from any nourishment, activity, involvement, or pursuit for any reason sets the stage for God to appear. Fasting is not a tool to pry wisdom out of God's hands." or to force needed insight about a decision. Fasting is not a tool for gaining discipline or developing piety, whatever that might be. Instead, fasting is the bulimic act of ridding ourselves of our fullness to attune our senses to the mysteries that swirl in and around us. To to attune our senses to the mysteries that swirl in and around us. To attune ourselves to what God is doing in our lives. For the Ninevites, fasting is their practice of repentance, and perhaps they'll be noticed by God. Here they are. 
God repents as well. That's actually the title of the sermon, um, but in my in our Presbyterian circles, you can get really you get in a lot of trouble for saying that God repented, that God changed, that He uh, did something different than what He said He was going to do. But here we have this passage. It says God turned from His way; He relented. Verse ten: When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And he did not do it. God saw them. He noticed. He took notice of them. He saw not just what they did, but how they did it as well. God relented. He decided that he wasn't going to do the disaster that he said he would do to them. He did not do it. It says that over and over again. I love that. Just this extra repetition. of God said he, he saw what they did. They turned. He relented of the disaster. He did not do what he said he was going to do, and he did not do it. It's just kind of like this overstatement of how he didn't do it. He repented by not bringing the disaster on Nineveh. God changed his mind in accordance with his own character, not some willy-nilly kind of way, Jonah 4, Jonah's beef with God is that he's a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Reading the story closely, we maybe could have picked out a few clues up along the way. It doesn't seem Jonah did, but maybe we could as we go back and look at this chapter. Verse In chapter 3, verse 1, when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again, there's actually a very tiny, very subtle change in the Hebrew. It changes an A to an E. It doesn't say that, and it's not reflected in our English translations. Instead of using the word against, the writer actually uses a similar word that means to Nineveh. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out, in our English translations, against it. But it actually says, call out to it. Perhaps this is suggesting, uh, suggests a commentator, that Jonah's message might not have a fully hostile nature to it anyway. Also in verse 3-2, God calls Nineveh a great city, but the literal translation of that is a great city to God, meaning that God had a great affection for the people of Nineveh, even possessing it, belonging to it. God is calling it his own. And in verse uh, 4, the word overthrown in Jonah's, um, in Jonah's prophecy, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, is not a word that only refers to destruction. It can also mean a change of heart, suggesting that maybe, perhaps, who knows, there are two outcomes to what God would do to the Ninevites. God's change of mind doesn't make him dependent on us, but I think it makes us more dependent on him. God does not exercise his power indiscriminately or arbitrarily, but he does so in relationship out of his own character, but in a relationship of patient love towards his people that he calls his own, those who belong to him. Wendell Berry is a farmer, a poet, a novelist, and an activist in Kentucky. Um, and he's written many things, and uh, he's written an essay entitled Life is a Miracle. 
And in it, he argues against the abstract, objective, impersonal, and dispassionate language that science often uses to help explain certain things. And he's not arguing against science. He's arguing against the language that is used because he says, while it's helpful to be able to categorize species and the diversity of them, he says, it cannot replace and not, it cannot become the language of familiarity, reverence, and affection by which things of value are ultimately protected. He says its affection requires us to break out of the abstractions. Affection, love, grace, and mercy that God has towards Nineveh, God has towards you and me. Even in its rebellion, even in its violence and evil ways, God's violent mercy sends Jonah to speak disaster and grace toward it. We are generally comfortable with an all-powerful, all-loving God, but it bears the question to be asked, how can that belief be reconciled with God's uh, prophecy that disaster would come, be reconciled with the pain and suffering that occurs in our own lives on a daily basis? Either he's all-powerful, but not good enough to want to end evil and suffering, or he's all good and not powerful enough to bring an end to evil and suffering. Either way, the God of the Bible, in this view, could not exist. For many people, it is not merely an intellectual conundrum and a logic that they are dealing with, but also an intensely personal problem. Our own personal lives are marred by tragedy, abuse, and injustice, both that which is done to us and that which we often do ourselves. Well, a brief a brief response. First, if you have a God who is great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God who is great and transcendent, transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that we just don't know. You can't have it both ways. Either he's good and loving and has the wisdom and knowledge and patience to allow some suffering to take place in our lives that maybe, perhaps, who knows, would allow us to turn from our evil ways. But you can't have it both ways. Second, though, we don't know the reasons why he allows it to continue. He can't be indifferent or uncaring because the Christian God, the God of the Bible, unlike all the other gods that Nineveh and many of us um, in the world um, worship, the God of the Bible takes away, takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he's willing to get involved with it himself. To send his son, Jesus, to suffer and to die on the cross on our behalf. See, God is not waiting in heaven, readying the chance to punish you. He's not just waiting for you to make that mistake. He's not just watching you so that you, he can come down and bring his hand of wrath upon you. He's waiting to change his mind. He's waiting to repent. He's patient so that he can relent of the disaster that is coming down upon you. God saw the Ninevites. God sees you. You belong to him, and he calls you his own. Because he has bought you with a price. In his deep affection for you, God does not exclude himself from the disaster of pain and suffering in this world, but he subjected himself to it. 
Jesus went to Jerusalem preaching repentance, and when they didn't, he bore the, the, their disaster by going to the cross. But he was also resurrected to be able to proclaim the life that God wants for you and for me. Because there are times that we don't repent. Remember, it's not a one-and-done event. It's a life lived out continually in repentance. We need way more than mere second chances in our lives because we don't heed the Word of God. We still board the first ship, the Tarshish, that comes along, running in the complete opposite direction that God has for us. We don't humble ourselves in prayer and fasting before Him. We don't give up our violence and evil ways all the time. But in our place stands Jesus, who already bore the punishment for our sins, so that God would not only see us, but see Jesus in our place. And who knows? God would not merely repent, but pour out his mercy upon our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you are patient, that you are slow to anger, that you abound in steadfast love and mercy. Pour it out into our lives. Help us to know of the grace and mercy that you uh, long to give us. Help us to repent. Help us to remember that we can come to you so many times, way more than second chances, over and over and over again to receive more of your never-ending, never-giving-up, always-pursuing love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to look to him, to see the life that you have for us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, empower us to live that life, that resurrected life in you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.